Our scripture reading today is Acts 18, 1 through 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 18, 1 through 17, actually. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Holy Trinity Church this morning. And I hope you have been able to get outside a little bit and enjoy the warm sunshine. I did a wedding yesterday. Outside, I was facing the sun for like 35 minutes, you know, and I, anyway, I won't go there, but I'm enjoying being outside. Hopefully you are enjoying the weather. There's really two kinds of people in the world, those who see problems and those who see possibilities. Maybe you can think for a second which one you are. Do you tend to see the problems? Do you tend to see the possibilities? The, uh, those who see the possibilities, I suppose, could be called uh, optimists, uh, the others could be called realists or perhaps pessimists, and those who have been great inventors, I suppose, have had a kind of combination of both, because you can't be merely uh, a visionary without being able to see the problems that need to be solved. People like Leonardo da Vinci, interestingly, sketched out before it was even physically possible to build submarines and helicopters. He had already sketched out what these might look like. Uh, One of the most important inventions was invented by Nancy Johnson. I don't know how familiar you are with history. Anybody know what Nancy Johnson invented in 1843? 
the hand crank ice, ice cream machine. So shout out for her. Marie Curie, of course, uh, first woman to receive a Nobel Prize, uh, and then also the first person to receive two Nobel Prizes, one in chemistry and one in physics. What's, what is great about great inventors is that they see possibilities where other people see problems, and they see a way through the problems towards the possibilities. We come to a, pit, a place in our text where the Apostle Paul goes to a great city called Corinth, and part of what Paul did in his day was take the life-giving message of the gospel, the idea, the good news, that you can live a life free from sin and condemnation through the person of Jesus. He took that from what had been mostly Galilee and Nazareth and rural communities, and he decided that he needed to bring this message to great city centers. So last week, we saw that he went to Athens, one of the, I guess you could say Athens is one of the intellectual epicenters of the world, that philosophy, really democracy, came out of Athens. People like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle there. And then Corinth, less of a kind of intellectual center. By the way, we're glad that all the kids are here today. We're glad that their voices are joining in. They're really just saying amen and preach it. That's what they're saying in their own language, all right? So we're glad they're here. Um, in, in Corinth was not so much an intellectual center as more of a commercial center. Um, it was a place on an, on an isthmus, so there were trade routes that kind of went out like spider's legs in every direction. So all kinds of people were coming and going. If Chicago and the center of the city of Chicago is transient, Corinth equally so or even more so, and we'll see that in a second in the passage. But not only was Corinth the epicenter of uh, commerce, it was also the epicenter of immorality. <laughs> Uh, in the evening, they say that approximately a thousand prostitutes would kind of descend on a particular uh, part of the city of Corinth. In fact, um, the word, there's a verb that was created and used for about 500 years that comes from the word Corinthian, and so it's like Corinthianize, actually meant to be sexually active or commit sexual immorality. And uh, one of the terms for a harlot or for a prostitute was, was actually like a modification of the word Corinthian. So when Paul comes, it's interesting in this passage because we don't see Paul fearful here, but in other places he says that when he came to Corinth, he came with fear and trembling. Also, he's getting beaten up in basically every city that he goes to, so that's probably part of it. But what I want to show you in this passage is just some of the problems, but also the possibilities. And I want you to reflect on your own life, because part of what God does in this passage is reframe the pitfalls that Paul is encountering in light of his promises, in light of his presence. And so, whether you're a realist or an optimist, whether you're an idealist or a pessimist, what I really want you to see is God's possibilities in the midst of the problems that we have. So that's the focus I want to just talk with you about. I'm going to ask you to pray with me first. 
Our Father in heaven, uh, I thank you, we do thank you for the people who are here this morning. Some working in the medical field and working on the, the very forefront of discovery. We thank you for that. We thank you for those who uh, have perhaps more humble positions in life, who are pouring their lives into other people, perhaps a few little children. And Lord, as we sometimes get overwhelmed by the challenges and the problems of our lives, we pray that you would help us to not merely see our own problems and our fears, but also to see the possibilities. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the ironies of what's called the good news of the gospel is that Jesus became weak so that we might become strong. And that God is a protector of the weak and that he uses people who are weak in order to do his will. For my text today, I'm really only going to focus on verses 1 to 11, verses 1 to 4, that first paragraph there, and then verses 5 through 11. But I want to especially show you a couple of the, of the charges that come in verses 9 and 10 um, that I think will be helpful for us. The truth that I want to put before you today is this, that when we, when we see our own pitfalls, God... God has promises that he wants us to remember, and that when we see our own problems, there are possibilities that God sees on the other side of that. And when the Apostle Paul later writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, this is, what, this is what I was referencing earlier, is that he says that when he came to Corinth, he didn't come, this is 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, I didn't come with lofty speech and wisdom. He says, but rather I came to you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. To me, that's a little bit of a comfort, because you kind of, I always tend to think of the Apostle Paul as being like, just the man's man that will go wherever he needs to. Not, I don't really think of him as being somebody weak and somebody trembling. That's what he says, though. He says that I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. So verses 1 to 5 uh, is what we're going to look Look, verses 1 to 4, actually, is what we're going to look at first here. And the problem, so I'm kind of contrasting problems and possibilities. The problem that you see is actually in verse 2, which is a, is a political problem. And those of you who have, have read ancient history know that Claudius, who was one of the emperors from uh, 41 to 50 AD, in 49, he made a, an edict, basically kicking all of the Jews out of Rome. And what historians think is that the reason why he did this was because the quote-unquote Jews, who would have, many of them may have been Christians, were re responding to someone named Crestus, which uh, historians think is actually Christ, and that the reason why they were kicked out of Rome was because of the problems that Christians were, ca were causing in Rome at the time. And that's what happens in verse 2 of this text, it says that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So to put it in, in contemporary terms, you could think of it this way, that, that a lot of the transients in our city, uh, a lot of the transients globally can be caused by political decisions that are made in various places. Wars, say, in Syria, displace massive people groups and cause immigration and then cause 
receiving nations to bring other people in. Political decisions, political tensions cause all kinds of problems. We're, we have been experiencing uh, in our country, as we've said many, many times, a greater and greater political polarization where it seems as if those who are sort of at the center are being pushed farther and farther to the margins and the side. So there's this kind of political uh, quote-unquote problem here, but what it results for Paul is he gets two new ministry partners. <laughs> so because of that edict that happened in Rome, these two, Priscilla and Aquila, now meet Paul in Corinth and become his gospel ministry partners really throughout the rest of his ministry. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned there in verse 2. I'll just read, beginning at verse 1, read this paragraph. After this, Paul left Athens, so he'd been preaching there, and he went to Corinth. He found a Jew named, named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Those two are mentioned multiple times in the scriptures, and, and many times it's actually inverted. In fact, later in chapter 18, it's inverted so that Priscilla is mentioned first, and then Aquila. She actually takes a kind of... Uh, teaching role with her husband in rebuking Apollos at one point. Um, she, they become, their church becomes kind of a home for the gospel to go out in Rome. So later in, Rome, in Romans 16, when Paul writes, he talks to, he mentions Priscilla and Aquila and the quote-unquote church that is in their house. These, Priscilla and Aquila were both tent makers also, just like Paul. And so think of it as business as mission. So they use their business to forward the mission of the gospel in, in the place of Corinth. And then Paul is going. It's, it seems like what's happening is Paul is working five, six days a week to support himself. And then he's going on the Sabbath day, on Saturdays, hoping to persuade Jews and Greeks. So a couple places that uh, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, Acts 18, verse 26 that's when they uh, rebuke Apollos, or they, it's not quite a rebuke. They instruct him in the way of the word more carefully. <laughs> Paul, uh, Apollos, was a, they, they call him like a really bold speaker, but there were aspects of the gospel that he didn't quite understand. Romans 16, Paul says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, or Prisca and Aquila. My f he calls them fellow workers in Christ. So... Really simply, I just want to say it this way, that God can take a political problem here and turn it into an opportunity. The, the transience of a city is something that uh, is hard for those who have lived in a place for 23 years and to say hello to someone and then also say goodbye to them almost at the same time. That's not just a modern reality. That was their reality as well. But what it also meant was that opportunities were coming even as the political decisions were coming as well. So we can see the problems of political polarization, but can we also see the opportunities of proclaiming that there's only one king who unifies us all? And we can see the problems of racism and injustice, but do we also see the possibility of the beautiful partnerships in the gospel that God has given us across the city with people who are very different than us and who stand together despite the color of our sin. What Luke wants you to see is that God can work in a place like the Roman Empire even when it is in tumult. Priscilla and Aquila as co-workers.
tent makers. So friends, I'll just close out this little section here and say, um, are there ways that you can use in this, in this politically challenging environment, do what Priscilla and Aquila did and use your profession, use your work to be of a particular witness for God in this city. So God can take problems and turn them into opportunities. He does that in the first little section there. He takes this political problem and he turns it into a partnership that was completely unexpected for Paul that lasts for the rest of his life with a man and a woman. The second thing I want to show you here is uh, how God takes opposition and turns it into an opportunity. He takes the persecution that's happening and he turns it into uh, a, a, a possibility. And this is in verse 5. So Silas and Timothy had been in Macedonia. <laughs> Listen to what it says about Paul. Paul was occupied with the word. So a great description for the Apostle Paul. And um, one of the reasons why I think Luke emphasizes that is because the conviction of Luke from the beginning of this book is that the way that the kingdom of God is going to grow in the world is through the word of God. In other words, it's the word of God that breaks down barriers in our hearts between men and women. So Paul is occupied with the word. He's studying the word, but he's not only studying the word, he is proclaiming the word. One of the ways that we think of it is that when God's word is read, God's voice is heard. We say, I really would like to hear God speak. One of the ways to hear God speak is to open his word, which he has given to us. So he's testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago, this, this act of pesher, this Hebrew uh, practice of teaching the Old Testament, saying this over here is that over there, or that over there is this over here. And what, what Paul is doing is he's looking back at the Old Testament and he's looking at places that talk about the Mashiach, the Messiah, and he's saying, see this prophecy over there? That was fulfilled in this person who came proclaiming the way of the kingdom of heaven, who had a particular heart for the poor, who in Luke 4 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom of captivity to those who are imprisoned and good news to the oppressed. He's saying, this is that. And uh, look at the response in verse 4. They opposed him and reviled him. If Probably the nearest way to translate the idea of reviling is verbal abuse. So I don't know if you've ever been about, around verbal abusive people. If you've ever been in a locker room or a fire station, then you have. Uh, but the verbal abuse, the idea is taking someone's self-worth and deconstructing it, essentially. <laughs> they were so opposed to what Paul was teaching that they were verbally abusing him. So not to be outdone, and this doesn't sound like a maybe fearful person, or maybe he's like projecting. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. That's a really strange thing to do, but it's an ancient Near East 
uh, action that people do. It's a way of um, rebuking. So it's almost like he's saying, I don't want any of the dust from your neighborhood on my clothes. <laughs> I want to be so separate from you. But he's also, there's a little bit of compassion here because what he's doing is he's proclaiming a message of freedom and forgiveness. And they're rejecting that. And so what he's saying is, before God, I'm innocent because I've proclaimed to you the truth of the gospel and of the kingdom. So there's opposition there, but look at the opportunity. It says he left there. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And then he sees some conversions. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. What I really want you to see, though, is these words in verses 9 and 10. We've already said that Paul must have felt weak, that he must have felt afraid, and we know that because God tells him not to be. <laughs> so you don't tell somebody who doesn't seem fearful not to be fearful, you tell it to someone who needs some strength. And perhaps there are, some of you walked in here for the first time. It's not easy to walk into a place like this. And... Some of you may be fearful about what is ahead for you or fearful about whether these truths about Jesus are really true or feel fear about what it means to actually take a step professionally and to speak up for who Jesus is and the consequences that come of following Jesus. Listen to what God says to Paul in a vision. Verses 9 and 10, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. At that point, Paul saw the opposition, but, God saw, but Paul saw the opportunity. Let me rephrase that. God saw the opportunity. Actually, what God sees is people. He sees that there are still in Corinth, imagine in the city of Chicago, that there are people who don't know, yet really know who God is, who have not yet found him. And God is saying, I have a plan in the neighborhoods of Chicago or here in the neighborhoods of Corinth. He's saying, for other people. It's a little bit like in John 10, where Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must go and find them also. That's what God is basically saying to Paul. He's saying, this, we're in this weird COVID moment where everything seems so fragile. Relationships seem fragile. Church seems fragile. I feel like it just feels like we're like a bunch of individuals sitting together with masks on. It's like, are we actually a community, you know? And what, what God looks at is not the fragility, but at the possibilities in Corinth. God is saying the harvest is plentiful. There's four statements here. One is don't be afraid, and it's 
Don't be afraid is one of the most, I, some people say it's the most pervasive imperative in all of Scripture. Some people say that it occurs about 103 times. Listen to Isaiah 41. I just want to give you a couple promises. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 27, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear the war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One of the particular verses when our daughter Julie almost died was from Psalm 34. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And then listen to this. And he delivered me from all my fears. Actually, it doesn't mean God will deliver you from all of your troubles. Because we're getting older, some of us. But he can deliver us from our fears that can accompany those Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And then a question, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So God comes to Corinth in a dream to Paul and he says, don't be afraid. Psalm 46, God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help in trouble. Anybody need present help? in raising children, in navigating your career, in finding relationships. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth gives way. And then he, after saying, don't, don't be afraid, he says, he, he kind of uh, gives another cha challenge and says, but go on speaking and do not be silent. What, what God is saying to Paul is, in a world that is actually so known for sexual immorality that it gives the name for it. Keep going. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Or you could think of it this way. Whatever your labor is, your labor is not in vain. In due season, you will reap. That's kind of been the challenge that I have been giving to others around me. Uh, do not grow weary of doing good. In due season, you will reap. Man, people are tired after the last 14 months. And Paul is being told by God to keep going. So what are you afraid of and what do you need to speak up about? I'm not talking, this is not talking about speaking up about moralism. It's talking about speaking up about the goodness and kindness of who God is. Listen to what happens next. God gives him a promise. Why does he not need to be, be afraid? Five words, for I am with you. The reason why fear, why you can push fear out is because God has given you a promise that he will be with you. The end of the book of Matthew, after he gives the commission to the disciples, he says, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Luke 14, he says, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then he gives a promise that I, I think is particular to Paul here. 
the presence of God that he'll be with us is for all of us. But here he says, and no one will attack you or harm you. That was for Paul at this moment in this city. He got attacked in every other city. So, um, But what God is saying is, I'm going to be with you through what you are going to go through. So in the midst of the problems, what God does is say, let me give you some promises. And part of the way to see possibilities instead of problems is to remember the promises of God in the midst of those challenges. What does he say? He says, I'm with you. And then the last thing he says here is, for I have many people in this city. All right. That's great. So Paul then stays there a year and six months and keeps on preaching. So we um, tend to see the challenges in our world, and what God is saying is, hear my protection for you. We tend to see our weaknesses, and God speaks of his strength. Rodney Stark, in his book, Cities of God, says this, that within 20 years of the crucifixion, Christianity was transformed from a faith based in rural Galilee to an urban movement moving far beyond Palestine. And he says, any study of how Christians converted the empire, sorry, any study of how Christians helped to convert the Roman Empire is really a study of how they Christianized the cities. May God do so again in our day. There's a little place where uh, Jesus says to the disciples that. It's harder for a rich person to come into the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then they say to him, well, so who can be saved? And he says to them, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And then he gives them this little promise that's akin to this idea of, I have many people in this place. He says that anybody who follows him and counts the cost, will be, will receive a hundredfold in this life houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And Bonhoeffer says, here we have a visible brotherhood that is to compensate 100-fold for the things that we have lost or the challenges that we have faith. We're going to sing in a second. I heard the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. There's a lot of problems in this city. Let's depend on the promises of God to bring us to see the possibilities of this city as well. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, if we're honest and if we are truthful, yes, our, our strength is small. So take these spiritual practices, Lord, of watching and praying. You see the doubt in our hearts You see the bitterness in our hearts. Make your promises more powerful than our pessimism, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.